electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi there, I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on Squawk Pod, after 14 years at Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg is stepping down from her COO role. Media watcher and analyst Rich Greenfield. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people worried today about what this means for Meta, but I think this was sort of inevitable as Mark sort of pivoted the company. And the legacy she leaves with Axios reporter Sarah Fisher. Cheryl is leaving on top. This company has grown its business 43,000% since she joined in 2008, and it's continued to impress Wall Street. And Elon Musk is putting pressure on his employees. The Tesla CEO says, work from home, no more. But his attitude could backfire. Harvard Business School's Sadal Neely. To force people in the office is to reject the digital revolution that is here and it is here forcefully. That said, Elon Musk will probably always do whatever he wants. LaSalle Network CEO Tom Gimbel. There's less turnover in a non-virtual world. And when you're running Tesla, you have the ability to make those decisions. Those stories plus Jamie Dimon sees an imminent economic hurricane, Biden is making moves on student debt, and guac is extra. Bitcoin, that is. If you've got some spare crypto, you can now spend it on Chipotle. Why would you want to? I don't know, but you can. It's Thursday, June 2nd, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you buy in three, two, one, fuel please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC, where we are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Brian Sullivan and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are out today. J.P. Morgan Chase, meanwhile, CEO Jamie Dimon said he's preparing the nation's biggest bank for an economic hurricane and advised investors to do the same. Referencing comments made last week, Dimon said he's changing his view from storm clouds to a hurricane. He said conditions seem fine at the moment, but nobody knows if the hurricane is a minor one or Superstorm Sandy. He told a room full of analysts and investors, quote, J.P. Morgan is bracing ourselves and we're going to be very conservative with our balance sheet, Um, which, you know, my immediate reaction was this is very on brand for for Jamie, how he's positioned the bank. He's referred to the fortress balance sheet of J.P. Morgan just before the global financial crisis. Um, So in a sense, their customers are doing fine. Credit seems good. Consumers are spending. But obvious things he mentioned specifically were oil could go to 150 to 175, obviously, with the, you know, the war uh, as an exacerbating factor and the quantitative tightening, which, of course, is the Fed starting to shrink its balance sheet. So it's kind of a we're, we're in risk mitigation mode. We're not in trying to stretch for returns. And that's how they operate. That's what you expect out of them. Yeah. Perfect risk management, looking ahead, seeing the, the storm clouds, things that might uh, materialize, things that might not. We were just talking about it. It's almost the Berkshire Hathaway of the banking system, that you know they're going to be there in good times and bad. But it sounds like, Mike, you're suggesting he kind of wants to scare you a little bit. I, th- I don't know that he wants to scare anybody specifically, but he wants to 
explain in part why JP Morgan right now is focused not on reaching for riskier returns and putting capital in the way of the economy, you know, where they don't know it's, where it's going to go. And he's, he's explaining to investors, look, we're going to be a little more, uh, a little more careful with, with our own capital. And this is how we're, uh, you know, we're assuming you kind of, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. Type. Well, he, one of the other things he said that caught my ear, and by the way, it's kind of playing out a little bit in a sideways way already just this morning. He said wars have a way of taking unintended turns in ways that we don't necessarily expect. And if you go to CNBC.com right now, the big sort of red sticky headline is Moscow calls U.S. missile sale to Ukraine direct provocation. So we've got to remember that Moscow is looking at our aid to Ukraine as maybe a direct entry into certain things. That's the headline this morning. I think that's kind of what Jamie was getting at, Becky, yesterday was... We don't have any idea how that's going to turn out. Between that and the EU saying that we're going to cut off most shipments from oil coming in, we're not going to do it with natural gas, shut off the pipelines there. But, you know, that, that, they don't get to control what Moscow's reaction to any of those things are. Especially if, as many of the reports came out, Putin is maybe not, well, yeah. not all there, right? You don't know what the reaction is going to be. If they block the Bosphorus, block food shipments, mass food risk around the world, which leads to social unrest. I think Diamond was kind of saying, hey, from a risk mitigation perspective, we need to look out. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But there's also, by the way, yesterday, a Russian credit default swap default. It was a small interest payment, $1.9 million, but it triggered the credit default swaps. If you bought them at three cents a couple years ago, you made a few billion dollars on the payout. Anybody remember? When's the last time we talked about credit default swaps? So there's, there's, there's some there are some weird things happening under the there's hood no of the market. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it's a kind of thing where he would rather stress test his bank himself rather than you know subject the, you know it to conditions out there and the and the regulations. And, and by the way, people are saying, what's right? Is it are things great right now, or are these clouds building on the horizon? The answer is both. The answer is things are great right now, and he said the same thing. This is not a contradiction from what he said before. This is a contradiction. I mean, this is just telling of what can come down the road. And it's why the hurricane metaphor works, because sometimes they are unexpectedly destructive, and sometimes, you know, we brace for them and they don't really strike. And then you yell at the, the weather person. But, Becky, I think you're exactly right, and people get frustrated by this. And I think what you're referring to is if you're a market participant, you've got to think in two time frames. There's now, and then there's the future. Sheryl Sandberg saying she is stepping down from her role as chief operating officer of Facebook parent company Meta, a position she has held since joining in 2008 as sort of Mark Zuckerberg's number two and sort of resident adult in the room. Together, they turned the social media network into an advertising giant. At one point, very briefly, the company was worth north of a trillion dollars. Current chief growth officer Javier Olivan will take over Sandberg's role in the fall. She will stay on the board, Becky. What do we read into this? Is it just she wants to step away? Or is this a sign of Mark? Look, there have been rumors out there for a couple of years at this point about the tensions that may or may not have built up between the two. I think you can look at this. She was brought in as a Washington insider who was going to help navigate things and build this company, and and she did. She helped build the company. If you're looking at Washington, there's a lot more pressure coming these days. I don't know that anybody could have sidestepped that, given um, the reach of the social network and the involvement and the interest from Washington and probably the inability for Facebook or Meta or whatever you want to call it in any way, shape or form to sidestep 
the direct attention that's come, the, the negative implications that have come from that. Um, She's still going to be on the board, so she's not leaving entirely. It's a long run, I think, to be the top two at a company of that size and complexity. And she also, of course, was more responsible for monetizing, you know, the business, uh, which has been a huge success and obviously had, had the hiccups recently. It's obviously a, a tougher moment for the company and for the industry right now. So, you're But she's staying on the board. Back. It's not like she's leaving. It's not like she's moving away from this entirely. And I think that that will be important for continuity for the company. Let's see. But, you know, you wonder if there's more going on here, because if you've traded this stock, Mike, if you traded it, that's a different issue. If you bought the stock years ago and have held it, Facebook stock in Ju- today in 2018, 2018, it was $190 stock. Yes. Today, it's $190 stock. Sure. So you're looking at four years of returns wiped out, and you wonder if there's internal, the employees who are sitting on options that may be underwater. Yeah going to market saying, fix this. Well, there, there's no question. And there, look, the stories, the rumors that have come up have been that maybe people were frustrated that she was off doing some of the lean-in stuff instead of focusing on some of these things. But I got to tell you, the relationship between the two of them seems incredibly strong, always has. And in any relationship, there's going to be tensions that come up. Is this, you think she's getting forced out? I, you know, I, I'd be shocked to think that, especially when she's staying on the board. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I would be surprised if it was something like forced out. But, um, you know, there's always a moment when it makes sense to rethink exactly how you're structured and who's managing well, what. Well, it's like, it's like it's, Becky and I were talking yesterday, Mike. I don't know if you – I'm sure you watch Squawk Box all three hours every minute every day. We talked about Jerome Powell and how the, the administration is throwing its support behind the Fed. But nobody's asking if you're supporting the Fed. There's these nuanced languages. And Mark Zuckerberg yeah. saying she's awesome, she's amazing, whatever. And then there was a but. But – we need to move on. Sure. And that was the statement. And by the way, to your point about the stock, it's all been payback. It's up almost 600% last 10 years. Of course, it became public 10 years and a couple weeks ago. Um, and so that shows you, you know, when it seems like, you know, you've built up too much excess return, the market's going to come and take some of that back. So that's the way it's gone. The Biden administration plans to cancel all outstanding student loans for those who attended schools that were operated by Corinthian Colleges. That was formerly one of the largest for-profit education companies. The schools have been accused of predatory and unlawful practices and filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2015. Around 560,000 borrowers stand to benefit from the debt cancellation, which will come out to around $5.8 billion. Officials said former students who still have a loan balance should be refunded for previous payments made on their debt. And the relief should be automatic, meaning that borrowers would not have to navigate any paperwork or apply. This is a situation where debt forgiveness makes a lot more sense than broader debt forgiveness for people who have taken out loans for college and gone on from there. It was a fraud. It was. The school was a fraud, and a lot of taxpayers are going to be on the hook for it because who's making student loans for the most part? It's the federal government. So maybe the federal government could do a better job looking into some of these for-profit colleges and saying, what the hell, sorry, what the heck are you actually offering here? The whole business model for some of those was just essentially being the, 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 the conduit for federal loan money running to students, not really converting it into degrees. And, and by the way, not worrying if these students graduate, right. not worrying what happened to them along the way. Yeah. yeah, listen, hey, you know what? How about this? Pull a 21 Jump Street if you're the federal government. Seriously. Any ha- debt reference? It is. He's been in the news for other reasons, by the way. Find somebody, if you think a, comp- a school is kind of sketchy, have a government agent enroll in the school. Undercover. Yeah. Just check it out. Like, am I learning? Is there real work? 
Do I have job prospects? Look, this goes back to the conversation we had with Mitch Daniels. Was it earlier this week or late last week? Who's the president of Purdue University, former governor of Indiana, who says schools should be on the hook for some of this, too. If you are pushing students through, they're not getting degrees, they're not getting jobs afterwards, that's a bad situation, and it should be alerted, and you should not have the same access to federal loans and programs as this was set up. And by the way, Purdue University, first of all, he's capped tuition and fees at the 2011-2012 levels for that school, has maintained doing that. 60% of their students graduate without any debt, and 99% of their students get a job after college. You have a soft spot for Indiana, though. My parents are Boilermakers. That's where they met. And you went to high school in Val, what, Val, Val, Valpo. Valpa- I graduated Valpa- from Valparaiso. Valparaiso. Well, I graduated living in Valparaiso, Andrean High School. But, yeah. But, but Mitch Daniels does it right. That is the good Midwestern way of looking at it. Whether you agree with his politics or don't, that is the way of kind of looking at it and making sure colleges have some skin in the game, too. Yeah. And 40% of all outstanding student loan debt is for-profit colleges. Yeah. Check this out. You can now pay for your burritos with Bitcoin. Why would you want to? I don't know, but you can. Chipotle and payment network Flexa announcing the chain will be accepting digital currency at all of its nearly 3,000 U.S. locations. Flexa currently supports almost 100 cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. Why? Can I, yeah, I was just going to say, if you are a believer in crypto and you think it's a great investment and it's going up, why would you ever use it to buy a burrito? I would never use any of my stocks to say, okay, I sell my stocks. You can have a portion of a stock to buy this. Well, the pizza guy, remember, back 2010, he bought two pizzas with Bitcoin that are now worth $140 million or something like that. But that's my point. If you think that this is a good investment, you're not going to spend it on something stupid like a burrito. But you will spend it on PR, and we just did the story, so yeah, it worked. Fair enough. <laughs> that is true. I mean, <laughs> there is a case for big-ticket stuff being able to, you know, if you wanted to buy a, a painting or a house where it's going to hold its value because you have accumulated wealth in crypto right. and but it's easy to roll But a burrito's not going to hold its value. Uh, hey, not, not for you, you've had the wrong burritos. Some of them stay with you for days, Becky. <laughs> Coming up on Squawk Pod, Sheryl Sandberg's decision to step down from her COO role after 14 years at Facebook. Axios Media reporter Sarah Fisher. By leaving now, Sheryl Sandberg preserves her legacy as one of the most shrewd marketing and tech leaders in the world. And how she's leaving it. Tech watcher Rich Greenfield on the new era for Meta. And it's not like Facebook has created something all on their own. They've been great at copying others. You take Instagram stories, take reels, which is like TikTok, but they haven't created something from scratch. And the metaverse, they're gonna have to create from scratch. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. 
You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Facebook parent Meta's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, is stepping down from her position after 14 years at the company. Joining us right now is Rich Greenfield. He's with Lightshed Partners and Sarah Fisher, Axios media reporter. Let's talk through what this means, because this is pretty historic to see her stepping away. Such a long time person who has built up such a significant company and, and, and played such a key role along the way. Rich, I'll ask you first, what does it mean for the stock? Well, I think in some ways, it's Becky, it's almost surprising it hasn't happened already. I mean, the company has clearly pivoted from what Cheryl helped build, not meaning revenue and earnings wise, but certainly the focus of the company. When Mark changed the name of the company from Facebook to Meta, it was obviously more than just signaling of where the company was going. And it's moving towards this sort of futuristic, I think, you know, still in many ways for a lot of consumers and even investors, but intangible metaverse. And we don't sort of know when that becomes really applicable to the majority of the multiple billions of Facebook users or meta users. And that's not what Cheryl built. I mean, Cheryl built the advertising business that underlines the news feed on Facebook Blue and on Instagram. And so I think in many ways, the most question was, this was inevitable one, two, why today versus you know six or nine months ago? I think that's a great question and I can't really answer it, but I don't think there's anything surprising about Cheryl moving on, especially given the fact that the company is pivoting so hard uh, into this future, especially with this growing kind of threat from TikTok, which has certainly become the leader in um, innovation, I would say. You know, I don't think Meta, when you think about Facebook Blue and Instagram, they're not innovating and, and creating new functionality the way TikTok is. I think in many ways they're chasing TikTok. And so, again, it, it sort of feels inevitable. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people worried today uh, about what this means for Meta. But I, I think this was sort of inevitable as Mark sort of pivoted the company. Sarah, when when Cheryl came into this, she she was the adult in the room. She was the one who was responsible for taking, you know, a lot of young engineers who were working crazy hours and trying to focus this company and find a way to make it profitable and monetize it. And she's clearly done that in a big way. Um, Got to wonder who, who's the adult in the room now. Is it is it Mark himself at this point? He's got a whole team of people underneath him that are going to sort of scramble to take over all the different things that Cheryl oversaw. So you have Javi, who's the new COO. He's going to focus on the things that Cheryl had to do operationally. Think about all the departments she oversaw, comms, legal, et cetera, policy. Then you have Nicola, uh, who's going to be leading sort of the ads push in uh, behind where Carolyn Everson used to be. There's a woman now named Marmy Levine, who's the chief business officer. So what they've done is they've kind of, over the past few months, put people in place and elevated them to take over all of the things that Cheryl was handling. But I think, you know, wondering why Cheryl's leaving now, Cheryl is leaving on top. This company has grown its business 43,000% since she joined in 2008, and it's continued to impress Wall Street. Now, the company, as Rich pointed out, is pivoting its business to the metaverse. It's unclear what growth will look like. It's unclear how fast they're gonna get there. And so by leaving now, Sheryl Sandberg preserves her legacy as one of the most shrewd marketing and tech leaders in the world. If she hangs on a little bit longer, you're seeing what's happening in the markets. Who knows how long it takes you know, until Facebook can get some momentum back. Rich, what do you think about the stock's pretty rapid decline and the doubts about the company's future. Is Meta the place to be? Is that, 
not meta the company, not meta the company. I mean, the metaverse is that the place to be? Is that the right way of looking at things? How do they deal with any regulatory scrutiny, additional regulatory scrutiny that's going to be put on the company? Look, the hard part is in any other environment. If if Mark Zuckerberg, in many ways, hadn't ended up sort of one of the most hated people in tech from a regulatory standpoint, I mean. He sort of put himself in a position or put the company in a position where because of some of the, the missteps and the challenges they faced, they can't make acquisitions. I mean, g- given the strength and, and the size of the growth that Sarah just mentioned, in a normal environment, they would buy their way out of their challenges. They would go out and buy Roblox. They would go out and buy Epic Games. There are so many things in terms of building blocks of the metaverse that they would buy and it would you know, literally turbocharge or, you know, leapfrog them into the metaverse in in a very significant way. Because if you think about the metaverse, the most tangible aspect today to a consumer is playing games. I don't care whether you're in the world of Roblox or if you're, you know, playing Minecraft or you're in Fortnite, that is the closest thing we're going to get today. I mean, I guess Snapchat, you would say too, but you would say to do this, meta would make a big deal. They can't. They literally cannot in this regulatory regime with the way the company is perceived. They have to build their way out of that. And that is, first of all, that's unknown. It's not like Facebook has created something all on their own. They've been great at copying others. Take Instagram stories, take Reels, which is like TikTok, but they haven't created something from scratch. And the metaverse, they're going to have to create from scratch. And I think that makes it very hard for investors to get excited right now. It's very inexpensive stock which makes it attractive. But on the other hand, they are losing engagement, time spent, the most important metric. They are losing to TikTok. And the metaverse is something that I think most investors feel like they're spending too much money on with too long dated of a potential of success. And nobody knows how to handicap that the, the potential of success over, let's just say, a 10-year period of pivoting towards the metaverse. So it becomes a tough stop. Rich and Sarah, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us today. Keys will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, Elon Musk is over work from home culture. But why? What's he afraid of? Sadal Neely from the Harvard Business School. The fundamental question for me is what problem is he solving for? What visibility is he worried about? To what extent is this about perception of work or the substance of work? Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. 
All right, good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box or welcome to Squawk Box live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I am Brian Sullivan. Becky Quick is here. Mike Santoli is here. Joe and Andrew off. They should be back next week. Let's just say that Elon Musk has some new thoughts on remote work. He commented on a Twitter post showing a leaked email to Tesla office employees that said remote work was no longer acceptable, saying that employees unwilling to comply with office work should pretend to work somewhere else. His quote, let's talk about it, with Tom Gimbel, LaSalle Network CEO, and Sadal Neely, Harvard Business School professor and author of Remote Work Revolution. So Sadal, let's start with you. You wrote, literally wrote a book on this. Now, there's been some back and forth. Was, was Musk talking to everybody or just sort of top executives in his company? Either way, your take on Musk's comments. Of course, there's no doubt that he can set the standards for his company as a leader, the best approach he sees fit. And there's no doubt that those who are recipients of this decree will have the option to determine whether they'll go along or not. But unlike the vast majority of CEOs that I've spoken to, he is saying what everyone wishes they could do without losing people. But the fundamental question for me is, what problem is he solving for? What visibility is he worried about? To what extent is this about perception of work or the substance of work? So there's a lot to unpack here, but he's doing something many wish that they could do. But there's a big risk here. He may lose people. He may lose some people. Tom, let's take it full circle. In the commercial break here, by the way, which is sometimes the best part of the show, we were talking about Marissa Meyer, the former CEO of Yahoo, and Marissa Meyer, a number of years ago, I don't even, Becky, what year it was, basically said, nobody's going to remotely work because we've been tracking your VPN activity and you're not working. She actually said it first before Elon Musk years ago. I mean, Elon Musk is probably not going to say something without some data. Do you think there's, he's getting cooked for this. Is there anything behind it, though? Well, I think Elon Musk has a track record unparalleled with how many billion dollar companies he's created and has a vision for how he believes teams need to work in order to achieve results. And that's been proven time and time again. And so the the, the balance of a non-pandemic remote work culture forever, we've never seen before. And we don't know what those results are. Are we going to bet on the individual who's had a track record unparalleled in business? Or are we going to go with a philosophy that may or may not be true? And we know that teams working together uh, tend to have more creativeness, accomplish more. And there's actually, and I'm, again, I run a recruiting and staffing firm that there's less turnover in a non-virtual world. And when you're running Tesla, the leading automobile company or company and innovator in the world, I think that you have the, the ability to make those decisions. Sadal, we were speaking with Steve Leisman earlier. He did this huge study just talking about how people are feeling about their jobs uh, and their paychecks at this point. Uh, a lot of people are not satisfied with the raises, but a significant portion are okay with it. But Steve was just saying through this, reading through the comments, a lot of people are okay with a, a pay raise that is not keeping pace with inflation because they are allowed to work from home. That's a huge benefit, not only on their time commitments, but also it's, it's effectively a raise. You don't have to pay for the commuting costs that you were paying before. And with gas prices so high, that's a big deal. I can understand companies saying, okay, we don't want to pay more to employees right now, so we will give them these benefits that they seem to treasure so deeply. 
but everything swings on a pendulum and it seems like things have swung pretty far. When it's a tighter job market, my guess is that employee, employers will not allow these same freedoms that they are, at least on the scale at this point. Do you agree? You know, uh, when COVID hit, many people said that they were saving some $5,500 a year from the commute expenses, the lunches, the coffees, etc., which is significant. And now you add this inflation, inflationary environment. So there's no doubt that there's a cost to commuting to work uh, that people don't want. And there's also the time factor, which takes them away from the work-life flexibility that they've been able to achieve with their families. But I will say, when I hear Elon Musk, when I hear my friend Tom, uh, there's some biases. I mean, Elon Musk is in the car business. He wants people to commute. My friend Tom is in the in-person employment business. So it's, it's, we have to be very honest around our biases compared to the fact, the empirical fact, 30 years worth of data that remote work and hybrid work actually increases performance. It does not decrease it. It increases performance. It, it does. It does increase performance and productivity, Sadal. But uh, Tom, I'll take it a little different way. And maybe it's maybe it's too far off to the one side, which is humans. I'd like to believe humans matter. Human relationships still matter. Trust, respect, knowing people. The longer we go from this pandemic, you're going to have people who remote work together who have never met in person. And I do wonder when you know your colleagues, when you know there's maybe what they're going through at the time or their family is going through, maybe it adds a level of respect and sort of the way you trust and treat them. Is, is there something there? Because if you've never met, what connection do you have, which means how would you treat someone? Not only that, you get to interact physically with people who are different from you. It's actually a big hurt to DEI to not work in the same office, whether you're living in suburbia or a high rise or, or wherever you, you may uh, commute from or work from. If you're just in your house with a camera, with your friends, with your family, that majority look like you, act like you are, are from where you're from, you're not gaining any social interaction with people who are different than you. And, and I got to tell you, overcoming obstacles is what's made America great. And when we're talking about how easy can we make everything for everybody, we're losing the fight. And this is the problem that's going on right now is if we're people are dying in Ukraine and we're worried about a 20 minute commute. We're talking about my, my good friend. And I'm, I'm saying that in jest because she is a friend. Sadal says, oh, well, people are saying they have to spend money on coffee and lunches at, at work. Well, last I heard, you got to eat at home too. pack your lunch and bring a cup of coffee. The, the concept here is, are we going to move this country forward past the pandemic? I have a hybrid company. OK, I think hybrid is here to stay, but there is going to be some formative in the office three to four days a week. And that's coming back and coming back. Soon. Because so that's a great point. So talking, Sadal, talk to that about saving money, because I get it. We don't want to commute five days a week. It's expensive, especially right now. But you do want to also know your coworkers, because I would imagine that if you are fully remote, there's got to be more turnover because you don't have the loyalty. You don't have the friendships. You don't have the relationships. And training new employees is not only expensive to find, to bring in, but there's also productivity losses because now you've got a new person that doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, turnover is extremely harmful for companies. We know that, that it's a year and a half's worth of that person's salary that you lose when people leave. 
But the reality is you can build relationships, you can build trust, you can build everything in a digital environment. Oh, so to come say on. that everything, oh yes, absolutely. Think about global companies and global collaboration where people by definition have had to work distributed around the world. This is not new. Global companies have been doing this forever. There are some periodical in-person experiences, but to say that digital tools don't allow us to communicate with one another, to get to know one another, is to say that we have not advanced and we will not advance in a world where the digital revolution with AI and machine learning and algorithmic uh, uh, work is very quickly showing up. So to force people in the office is to reject the digital revolution that is here and it is here forcefully. And with all due respect, when Harvard goes fully remote, I'll 100% agree with you. It's not going to happen because learning is best done in person, collaboratively. Not true. With- not true. Harvard is hybrid. And the online learning marketplace is exploding in ways that you can't even imagine. Is. I think we got the makings of a good Twitter poll. Remote. Sit all and Tom, it's a good debate. And you know what? Polite respectful, yes. smart. made my day. Sit all in time. You gave me hope for humanity. For Have a great day. Thank you very much. You too. Bye. <laughs> It, it adds to the inequality in this nation when you have blue Agreed. collar workers who have to go into work and have through the entire p- pandemic mm-hmm. and white collar workers who never go to work. I, there's got to be some blend, some more comfortable medium. But uh, there's, if you started a job in the last two years, there's a good chance you've never met any of your colleagues in person. I just don't know. Yeah. Call me a relic, you know, whatever. I don't know. Relic. Humans matter. Thanks. You're welcome. It's, are we getting into that debate again from yesterday? No. No, we're not. Quiet. <laughs> I'm not going to come out well in that if we're talking about age, so forget about it. How uh, old are you, Sid? You I think I'm older 35 than you, 35 or 72. I, I have I no idea how old you are. You, you look good. It's the Gene Hackman thing. I started out looking old. Um, <laughs> Easy <laughs> Benjamin Button Santoli over here. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening, as always. Squawk Box is usually hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. And please follow us on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.